<laughs> what about you, Natalie? One that gets me oh. is our patients are different. They're not. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, um, I'm pretty sure we're all part of the same human race. And I get that Texas is Texas, but there ain't different people in Texas. There's just Why am people. I not surprised that Texas is the big offender? <laughs> Being a Texan myself, I really think we're special. I just want to uh, say I'm not officially from Texas, though I live. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am the podcast editor, Dr. Grace Pratt, calling you in from Shawnee, Oklahoma, not my usual location of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, because unfortunately, I am working from home. Um, I am joined by three of our co-hosts this morning, and we're going to have a great conversation about routines and workflows in integrated care. Uh, I think this is the time of year, uh, I should have started by saying Happy New Year, but I think this is the time of year when a lot of us are thinking about building better habits, um, having better workflows. And when I think about that in the clinic environment, I think about, you know, what is our routine? What does our workflow and protocols look like? And I think that's going to be a really great conversation for us. Um, as we're getting started, I'm going to let all of my co-hosts introduce themselves. Uh, I'm going to just going to kind of go around the circle here and call people out. But for our icebreaker question, so as I mentioned, I'm working from home. I am quarantined with my children. And one of the ways that we are surviving quarantine is watching Encanto on repeat. I think a lot of people, if you haven't watched it yet, you definitely need to. Wonderful message of generational trauma, of um, you know resilience. Uh, but lots of people are watching it. But it made me think about families and fictional families. And so for my icebreaker question for you, I'd love to hear what fictional family would you like to be a part of? If you could pick anyone, I can see everyone's thinking faces, but I'm going to put Deepu on the start to lead off with us. Uh, introduce yourself, Deepu. All right. My name is Deepu George, and I am in this recording, I guess, from the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, all the way down in McAllen, Edinburgh area in the southernmost tip of Texas. Um, I am thinking of a fictional family and I can't really think of any, but I think most of my cultural references for fictional families has a lot to do with the movies that I grew up in South India. And so I can think of several families in like some of my favorite movies that I can see myself wanting to be a part of, right? So uh, a lot of them tend to be families I kind of did a lot of benevolence for the communities around, but they also had like this anti-hero quality to them, meaning, you know, if they had to get down to business, still get down to business, you know? So that kind of a, I don't want to say a, a, a kind of crime syndicate family, but maybe, you know, who knows, right? <laughs> so uh, that's where I, uh, my mind goes immediately. I can't, I don't have any, um, I guess, Western uh, or American references that I can immediately think of. Well, it's making me think Robin Hood a little bit, like a, a little steal from the rich to give yeah. to the poor, a little bit of, you know. That, that's exactly it. That's right. That, <laughs> that's exactly it. Uh, I would be part of a Robin Hood kind of a family. Awesome. Thanks, you. Bria. How about you, Bridget? Uh, my name is uh, Bridget Beachy. I'm, a, I'm coming from Washington State, uh, also at home. Um, and a psychologist by trade. 
And uh, as far as a fictional family, you know, I don't watch kids movies ever really. It's, it's really, really rare. So I actually got your uh, message about the icebreaker. And so I was Googling this morning when I was getting ready, like most famous. Does it have to be a kid's family? Fictional family. Well, I don't know. That's where my (laughs) brain went to. And so I was thinking, I did watch the Incredibles and thought that that might be a cool family to be a part of. And then we've been binge watching Seinfeld and I couldn't help but think that if I was part of like Jerry's family, uh, his mom and dad are hilarious and they shower him with like love and you could tell that they're tight knit. And then Jerry is just so funny that, you know, he was like, I was in that family. I just thought that that might be really cool. So I, I, I settled on Seinfeld. I love it. Love it. There's, there's a little bit of a lane in her. <laughs> Bridget's trying to decide whether she's going to take that as a compliment or not. <laughs> I can see it written all over her yeah. face. Doing doing the Elaine uh, the Elaine dance. There. I dance like I, uh, Elaine. Yeah, you know it's not that far off. <laughs> it doesn't stop about, me though. <laughs> and what about you, Neftali? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Neftali Serrano or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. Um, I'm here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and it's great to start the new year with this group. So, fictional family that my mind immediately went to. Uh, like the shows, TV shows growing up. Um, and I don't know that I'd want to be part of these families, but I think it'd be fun. So like, you know, this probably age me somewhat, although I will say I watched this on reruns just for anybody out there trying to make me older than I am. This was on reruns. The Brady Bunch was a, just a fun family. You'd get into some trouble, but it was always like, you know, vanilla trouble and it would resolve pretty quickly and the parents would be very understanding. And the other show, and it was interesting to see which shows just came up to my mind, was Growing Pains. You know, and it was interesting because the dad in that is a psychologist or a therapist of some sort. And, you know, there's always these, these uh, sort of teenage issues uh, going on in the family. But again, just a, kind of a, a warm, safe, loving atmosphere that in the end, you know, everybody kind of worked their, worked their issues out kind of a thing. So yeah, those, that's what, that's where my mind went to. You know, I'm thinking about those nineties TGIF days too, because I was yes. thinking about full house. Uh, yes. so I think we might uh, air back to back there. <laughs> that's I right. Just... And, and, and sort of uh, RIP to Bob Saget, of course. Uh, yeah. When, mm-hmm. You know, I know. I think that's see him go. also one of the reasons why I was fresh on my mind feeling that loss. Uh, but I grew up watching Full House. I'm a couple years older than Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. So just thinking about that family and they also had a little bit of hijinks, but always, you know, loved each other and came through for each other in the end. That's kind of what I hope for, for my kids and my family. Uh, Well, thanks everybody. That was a fun way to start our morning. Um, Before we get into our our main topic, Natalia, you said you do have an announcement to make, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick news and note item here. First of all, I don't think you actually mentioned that not me, but 50% of our team has COVID right now on the call. So uh, just, just, I don't know if we should leave people guessing or not. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's just a story, just for history's sake, right? Because one day, Someone's going to look back at a podcast from 2022 and be like, you know, what was going on? Well, this is what was going on in January 2022. The real news to note is uh, just want to alert folks to keep an eye out for, I know it feels like it's early every year, but call for proposals for our annual conference in October. 
Uh, that's coming out here in mid-February. So I think it's February 15th, exactly. Um, so if you have thoughts, ideas about, particularly about the workforce, it's going to be a big theme. The uh, headline of the conference is celebrating frontline healthcare workers. You know, we've been through a lot in the last couple of years. And um, the conference committee really felt strongly about the need to focus in on resilience and wellness. Anything that, that really helps bolster the integrated care workforce, the care team, right? And so there's all sorts of things like that, that you might be doing right now or that you figured out that really work um, that, that COVID taught you. And you want to share that with the world and, um, and make that a part of what, what is permanently a part of what teams look like and what good patient care uh, looks like. So yeah, so keep an eye out for that. For more information, as always, you can just go to our conference site, integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. So call for proposals coming out February 15th. Awesome. Thank you, Naftali. I'm so excited about that theme. I think, you know, from the very first episode of our podcast, when the pandemic broke out, I remember us having these conversations about, we know this is going to be life-changing, world-changing, system-changing. We just don't know how yet. And so taking that stance of, okay, now we're to, by the time of the pandemic, two and a half, or by the time of the conference, two and a half years in, what do we know? What are we learning? How are we finding growth in this? Is, uh, but also how can we acknowledge the pain? Um, I think is going to be a really good time for that. Awesome. Um, well, we are going to move into our main conversation now. I was saying, I think it was before we started the call, um, that I am in that new year mindset, just thinking about new habits, new routines, like what are, what are we going to, you know, do this year to make things better? And this is, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit in my personal life, my big new leaf that I'm trying to turn over right now is to have a clean sink of dishes before I go to bed every night. I feel like that's something that normal people do all of the time. Like everybody else has got that on lock but it has always been a struggle for me. I get, I'm just tired by the end of the day. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I'm building a house. I think I've talked about that on the podcast before, and it's in the middle of construction. And in my new house, the kitchen and the living room, everything's real open. So there, there's no hiding from the sink right now. I kind of hide from the sink. Well, after my kids go to bed, I just don't go back to the kitchen. There is none of that in my new house. So I'm trying to get in a new habit of, uh, you know, having a clean sink. And it made me think about routines. This story's getting really long. Um, but I think that we use routines a lot in integrated care. And there's some of that too, where, you know, when we have a new program or we have, um, we're just starting out, we, many times we hear from clinicians and, you know, administrators who start out flying by the seat of pants. They're like, this is great. We like integration. We like mental health and medical care, put it together. But then the why and how of that happens seems to develop over time um, with that maturity through protocols, through workflows. So let's talk a little bit, just starting out broadly, you know, what is the utility? Why do we need workflows? What do routines and protocols look like in integration? It's a great topic, uh, Grace, and it's, it's essential. It's as essential as they come when it comes to integrated care. I think that whatever it is that you do, it needs to be as simple as humanly possible and not include more than three steps is even getting a little much. Uh, everyone on the team needs to know it. They have to have it memorized. If your flow 
involves that you have to write it down and have steps and have it handed out to everybody. Uh, not trying to be like a Debbie Downer, but it's not going to work. Uh, so uh, keep it simple. Starting stupid. off with the practical advice. Yes, yeah. that's so important. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and we're kind of using a little bit of old fashioned with some new technology where every morning there's a whiteboard for each of the pods that has all of the medical providers, the preceptor, the medical assistants, has everybody on the medical team who's on there. And then right smack in the middle of that, it says BHCs. And that is who is on for that clinic, which is we do everything in a half day, in a half day. And when a handoff is requested, folks look at the board, they see which BHCs are on and they send a team's message to each of us. And we have three minutes to respond and that's it. Okay. So, you know, I think there's so much we can unpack even from what you just said. First of all, I want to carry through the message of in whatever workflow or protocol you're using, it's got to be simple. But then that can span a lot of different things. So you're talking about like, how do we know who's on the team? How do we engage in like warm handoffs and communication on the team? And that is definitely one protocol and workflow. There's a lot of others, I think, that we can standardize too, because we're when we're talking about workflows, essentially we're talking about standardized practices. Um, and when we're working in a team environment, that gets really critically important because we want for our patients to have a consistent experience and for it to be evidence-based and for it to be, you know, unified in some ways, despite all of the many people on our team. And so that's kind of one of those pieces of importance, because if it's too complicated or if people don't know what to do, or if everything gets done differently every day, depending on who's in clinic, um, that team is not going to be functioning as well as we want it to. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's so many basic workflows that people sometimes overlook. Um, so one of the one of the very very basic workflows is just scheduling. So a lot of times when we're doing TA work with uh, health centers, they don't their BHCs don't have a schedule template. They just have a blank day. And so what that does is it doesn't help their their clerks or their schedulers to know hey, can we just book your entire day with follow-up patients? Like, is that okay? You know, you know, and, and then some clinics will then try to set these elaborate rules that, mm. their, that their schedulers need to remember, right? Which of course get broken all the time. And then if you have a full day of patients, that means you can't take any warm handoffs. So, so, so that you, you need the, some structure in place to facilitate the flow of scheduling, right? So I'm generally recommending that people create a schedule template that allows only a certain number of follow-up slots per clinic. And that allows then plenty of space for those warm handoffs that you're going to get. So you can really balance, you know, sort of on a 50-50-ish type level, your follow-up appointments and your scheduled appointments. But again, the important piece there is not necessarily the you can design it however you want, but from a team standpoint, your schedulers and your clerks and other people need to know. They don't need to be thinking about, hey, how do I schedule this person? Um, the other the other scheduling flow that people may not even think about when they're thinking about um, integration is just how you schedule patients after a warm handoff, right? Or even during a warm handoff, because for example, you know, if you want to chart on a patient that patient needs to be on your schedule in order to, to open an encounter to chart on them. So let's say you're a BHC and you don't have scheduling rights. 
right? That means someone else has to create that encounter for you so that it can be on your schedule so that when you're in the room, you can open it up and document while you're with the patient, right? So uh, again, another situation where you have to really think about what's the best flow. So in, in for example, in my situation, which is not a, not a typical situation. I'm in a family medicine program. I'm really the only BHC there, very part-time. Um, I've made the decision to just have a clerk do that. So, so my flow is I have to go ask the clerk to add the patient to my schedule. So that means I've got to kind of do some workarounds when I'm documenting things. I can't always get that done before I see the patient. In most cases, I encourage people to either develop a nice quick flow where you can send a message to a particular scheduler who will put them in right away or where the person themselves gets scheduling rights and can add the patient themselves to to their schedule so that they can begin documentation. Those are the kind of things that you want to work through. And again, like Bridget said, you want to come up with the simplest way that doesn't put an undue burden on another team member or on yourself in a way that eventually that process will break down because as human beings, we will always revert to the easiest, least restrictive process over time. It's always going to trend back that way. And Neftali, really quick, I, I know that I want to hear what DPU has to say. Uh, it was just real quick, a couple of small items there. Uh, one is there is no perfect scheduling system that works. No matter what you do, if you are in a busy integrated care setting, it's going to get blown up on certain days. And that's normal. And that happens we see places over and over and over again, try a million different strategies and it gets more and more complex as it goes. Sometimes in integrated care, things blow up. That That's just the nature of it. Uh, so still keep it simple. Uh, and I would re- recommend green slots for open slots with no rules attached, no initial versus this versus that. Also, our medical assistants are all trained. They put it right on. I have purposely chosen in my system, and again, everyone's system is different, to not give any scheduling rights to any BHC uh, to protect them from many, many things. So that's just my bit of advice is to not and to rely on a team member uh, on an easy process. Uh, So sorry, go ahead, DPU. I'm I'm super interested in where you're going. No, I I think you're kind of making the points um, that I want to make even more clearer. I think when we think about workflows, the first thing that comes to my mind is access, right? Like all of this is designed around the prime directive for integrated care, which is kind of increasing access to same day services, wraparound services, uh, you know, patient walks through no wrong door as they walk into the clinic, right? So that's one of the things. So that the simplicity in each of the steps that Bridget and Naftali are talking about is just really getting you right into the patient or the patient right into you, right? So one uh, thing that I think about is that The other thing with the scheduling uh, process, one of the things that I think may be important for us to think about is, I like where you went with BHC having no scheduling rights um, in a sense, Bridget, because we want to mimic uh, and kind of provide the BHC the same access to routine services that a primary care provider would have. So I, I would always say with the PCP, schedule their own patients or follow-ups, right? If the answer is no in your system, then the BHC shouldn't also be kind of managing that input, output, or whatever you need to do to get the patient on the schedule, right? So I try to encourage um, our system, which was kind of a hard battle in the beginning to kind of say, if you're scheduling, 
someone for follow-up or whatever, or a warm handoff, I just message the front desk in one of my clinics that I go to. And sometimes it's not in, I still go and do the visit and I chart in like a word document. And as soon as the appointment is up, I pull and uh, kind of copy paste into that visit, especially if it's a warm handoff. Um, so two things. One is just thinking about access. All of the workflows should be, um, your North Star should always be increasing access, increasing access for your medical assistants, primary care providers, and your patients, right? So anything that can remove any number of steps to kind of make that uh, North Star a little closer every day, that's what you should be aiming for. And then two, rely on your routine processes that are established in your system for any other mid-level primary care provider. The BHC should be in that same level and advocate for that, argue for that, because a lot of the times it's oh, it's behavioral health, they can do scheduling or behavioral health may want to say like, no, I want to do it because this is how we want to do it. We do want to train our systems to rise to the occasion, I think. And uh, DP, on that note, uh, this is where I get unpopular. So I'm excited to be the, maybe the bad guy is uh, in systems. When I come in, I, I tell folks, y'all got to see patients because if you're saying I can't schedule somebody I can't fax this. I need to be treated just like a PCP. And your PCP is seeing 22 patients a day and you're seeing four. It's not going to fly and it's not going to fly for very long. So uh, in our system, we weren't able to come out the gate doing some of this stuff. We had to prove ourselves first. And once they saw that we were seeing 10 patients every day, day in and day out, when we started introducing different concepts, the team was like, oh yeah, no, we got you they understood that we were part. So if you look and act different, really different, but you want all the same processes, I'm sorry, BHCs, but you do have to stop and look at your own actions and see how you're contributing. Because like I said, you're seeing four patients a day, day in and day out, the whole team's seeing 22, but oh, I'm sorry, I can't put somebody on my schedule. Uh, that's gonna get called out very quickly. I love how many words we have about this. I'm so excited. I had no idea that this was going to be such a hot topic for us talking about procedures and workflows, but I want to highlight a few of the things that are coming out, kind of the pearls of what you guys are saying that, um, you know, when we are trying to standardize processes and there's a few words that y'all have used that I feel like are really important. We're talking about structure. We're talking about standardizing. We're talking about um, kind of making things work smoothly for the system. And so when we're trying to put some workflows in place, we have to look around and, you know, it has to be system specific. It has to be what are the needs of your providers, your community, and your patients. Because in Neftali's system and the way that he's operating, it's working for him to put stuff on his schedule. And in my system, we have definitely found some hiccups and some hitches to our BHCs not being able to pop somebody on their schedule versus Bridget and Deepu because of whatever reason in your system, the volume, the you know role designations, the delineation of responsibility in your clinics, that's not what makes sense. And so I, I think there's a tendency and, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about scheduling workflows, but there are, you know, procedures for suicidal patients, for screening, for all, we can slice our, you know, procedures and protocols in all kinds of different ways to think about what that looks like. 
what I've experienced is a, a clinic realizes, you know, I'll talk really specifically in my clinic right now, we're trying to standardize a little bit more around what we're doing about um, risk assessment and suicidal patients. Um, because what happens and the indicator for us, and this may be true for a lot of people that we need a workflow is that people and you know we're a training clinic and so residents like look around and depending on who the preceptor is that day depending on who the resident that is that day questions are coming up that they shouldn't be questions they should be things that we know they should be things that uh, there's a clear delineation and workflow and it's not and so that's an indicator like okay these same questions keep coming up again and again we need some protocol here we need to standardize this um and so then some very well-meaning people look around and say okay well what's happening at that clinic or what's happening at this place or how is what's a let's pull a suicide protocol that we can use um and that can be a starting point but unless you are looking at what are our resources, what are our capabilities, what are our stuck points that are unique to our system, whatever workflow you try to pull from somewhere else or whatever protocol you try to superimpose on your structure is gonna fall apart quickly. And so that's one thing I keep hearing from you guys. And what I love though, and I think the broad question that people can ask is what are our values? So you guys are talking about access, and I think that's going to be a common one for all kinds of integrated care systems. And that's part of why we're doing this work is so we can increase access. But places also need to look like at our clinic, training is one of our values and one of our key reasons for everything that we're doing. So our protocol has to have that in mind, that we're working with learners we could have a resident who is their first day in clinic and they've got a suicidal patient. So our protocol needs to work for them in a way that a FQHC maybe that doesn't have any learners doesn't need the same pieces in place. So we need to be asking ourselves, what are our values and our guideposts that are gonna help us personalize? And then I really wanna bring in for us here too, the needs of the patient. So we're talking a lot about the needs of the clinic, the needs of our providers, but our patient populations really need to be taken into account when we're thinking about putting some of these standard workflows in place. No, absolutely. And I, along with training needs like that you identified and access is the other thing, right? See, the other thing I think about is with the keep it simple, stupid idea is, is it team-centered, right? Is your team able to and can they carry through on the ideas that you're kind of putting forward or generating together. Um, so I think that's the other thing I think about in terms of workflows. Does everybody have a similar mental model when it comes to beginning to think about what's going to happen with X or whatever it may be? Um, and getting together and getting that kind of um, making part of the routine. And the other thing to Bridget's point, I completely agree, right? Like, so there are times when I've seen two, three patients for a warm handoff, but they're not in my schedule at all. And at the end of the clinic day, I say, hey, I saw Dr. So-and-so's patient at 10, 30, 11, and 11, 45, right? Like, so can you add them to my schedule? My, my goal was to say, like, you know, there's all those patient registration process, insurance status, all of those things that I definitely didn't want to uh, replicate or do on my end, because typically that's what, you know, most systems want to have providers do. So that's what I meant in that, uh, in terms of, making sure that you fall into the routine process. But, you know, I have like our sports medicine clinic, for example, we haven't had like any um, EMR support for weeks now. 
because of we don't have an MA and all of that. I have all of my charts in a Word document waiting to be printed and scanned in. But, you know, I never stopped taking consults for any of the athletes that come by. Yeah, and I think to highlight that point, Deepu, I think I want to encourage people out there to, to think developmentally when they think about program development and, and workflow development. And I think Bridget made this point earlier as well, that you don't need perfection right away with a process to get going on a process, right? You want to have a very simplified beginning to a process and, and iterate from there. And I think um, it, it ties in with your point, Grace, about why customization is necessary. So a lot of times, there's lots of reasons why customization is necessary from a protocol standpoint, clinic to clinic. Um, and you gave a perfect example, Bridge. I think that, uh, Grace, that example of a suicide assessment uh, diff being different in a teaching clinic versus uh, just any other standardized clinic, absolutely going to be different. A lot of different variables there. Um, including just the teaching aspect itself, right? Which adds a uh, different uh, need into the process for the residents. But customization is also often necessary because there are wrinkles. There are sort of like, if you think about it, DNA, you know, DNA, our DNA often has errors in it. In a DNA strand, we don't have perfect DNA because of mutations over years and, and errors. And some of that leads to things that, that are not good. A lot of it's just benign. A lot of our clinics have DNA, that has errors in it. And we sometimes have to work around those errors, right? So we may have an ideal, like you take Deepu's uh, guiding star there, which is exactly what I tell clinics, do what your providers do. What primary care does is what we do. However, there may be some error in the DNA of the clinic and you can't fix that necessarily all the time. And so you have to create a workaround to make that work. Right. And, and you, but you, you think developmentally, you don't do that in a fatalistic fashion. You think of it in a developmental fashion. This gets back again, what Bridget was saying, when you then start sort of showing, Hey, this team-based care thing really works. This PCBH thing really works. This CLCM thing really works. This was then, it, then the system may get to a place where you have the ability to correct some of that underlying issue with your clinic. And you have more political capital, potentially, you have more proof of concepts, potentially around the process, and then you further adapt the process at that point, right? <laughs> so it's okay to think that way developmentally and not, not think, I've got to have the process perfectly in place. I'll give you a sort of a tangible example for me, which is one that I think is really crucially important, especially for PCBH, is uh, just clinical outcomes measurement. Because... It's, it's one of our weaknesses, really. We haven't done a great job of monitoring patient outcomes over time. There's lots of reasons for that, good reasons, I think. Um, but that often keeps people from doing anything in that realm, right? So it's like, well, well I'm not, I'm not going to do any monitoring whatsoever. And I would say, well, no, that's not, that's not really the answer because it's hard and because it's complicated. It doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you think about it developmentally. And you say, where do we start? What can we start tracking? How can we start helping ensure good continuity of care and that patients are not falling through the cracks, right? And you, you may start with a particular category, a particular screener. You know, example for me in my clinical practice, I just started using the outcome rating scale. It's a super easy four item scale. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go super low tech on this and I'm going to do a really stupid process, you know, laminated piece of paper and a marker. 
and I'm just going to bring it around with me. I'm going to test that workflow out and I'm not going to try to get Epic, my Epic people to build in a field for it. Um, I'm going to just going to stick it in my note because I just want to see, does this work? Does, can I, can I make this part of the workflow? Does do patients um, kind of gravitate towards it? You know, I'm going to learn, I'm going to fail fast on this. Right. And, and that's how you start processes um, in a developmental fashion. Um, I think too many people just shoot for like this perfection where they got this protocol written down and it's nice. And it looks like that HR paper stuff. And it ends up having 30 steps to it and it looks great on paper, but you know, you come back a year later and no one even remembers the process. Yeah. Niftal, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I tell our pre-doctoral interns that the first six months, I'm going to be telling you things that are facts and rules and you have to stand by them. And then the next six months, we're going to break them all. And the, and, and as long as you know why you're doing it uh, again, basketball metaphor, sorry guys, every single time that you're going to learn how to do a right-handed layup when you're a kid is you're going to go off your left leg. You just do, you would never start teaching somebody something else. And you can think of a million metaphors. You can imagine scales and as an instruments and whatnot. Once you understand why you're going off your left leg on your right-handed layup, then you can understand why there might be situations, why you're going off your right leg, why you're going off of two legs. There's a million different things that you can do. And so one of the things that I preach constantly is what primary care does we do. And we broke it really big time, uh, two major areas. And I still don't know how I feel about it, but one is our budgets are separate. It's, it's a long story, but in our system, monies were tied up and the flow of monies were tied up to where it seemed like we could not expand our program because we were losing money. It wasn't until we broke it apart that we showed we were not losing money and we were able to get requisitions because of it. I knew the risk that we were taking by doing a separate budget, but we did it anyway. So it would be equivalent to me going off on my right foot on a right-handed layup. Scheduling as well, our medical got super far behind. It was about three months uh, and their, their schedules weren't out. Our BHCs, our schedules weren't out. So patients were falling through the cracks. So uh, Deepu keeps saying, and I completely agree, keep your, your eyes on the values of access, team-based care, patient as primary. And in that case, it was hurting more patients to follow the protocol of the clinic. Now our clinic is fixing that issue, but it's going to be a process. So um, I couldn't agree with, you know, with, with Grace and, and Deepu and Neftali more about knowing these really strong fundamentals and then also knowing your system inside and out. And if you do quote unquote break uh, a fundamental just know why and have a good reason and have it be because of your system. Uh, but don't go too far either. Cause I've seen Simpson. Well, <laughs> everything, well, that, that doesn't work in my system and folks uh, will get kind of in, in, entranced in that. Like, well, our system is different. Our system is different. What well, ain't that different. So, rem <laughs> so remember yeah. that too. Yeah. 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 So, so Bridget and I are responding because uh, Bridget and I both do uh, technical systems source with clinics. So, this, so that's definitely something we hear a lot of. And, and it's like for someone who does consultation in this, in this experience, it is the bane of our existence. When we come in, we start talking with folks about like, Hey, here are standards, right? I mean, here's, here's, here's just, we, we've worked hard over 20 years to build PCBH, this is how you do PCBH. In our case, we also teach COCM and this is how we do COCM or SBIRT or, you know, this, this is like, there's some hard and fast, like, hey, this is just how you do it. You know, I mean, 
mean, that dog, you can keep experimenting, but we've experimented all up to nuts and, and the, and the whole, like, but our system is our patient. That's the one that gets me oh. is our patients are different. They're not. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey, um, I'm pretty sure we're all part of the same human race. And I get that Texas is Texas, but there ain't different people in Texas. It's just Why am people. I not surprised that Texas is the big offender? <laughs> Being a Texan myself, I really think we're special. I just want to uh, say I'm not officially from Texas, though I live. <laughs> I, you know, You're not so claiming it. <laughs> I love what you guys are saying in terms of procedure like the best practices are best for a reason and I love what you just said Nepali like build off of the backs of the years decades of experience of people that have been doing this and kind of yeah if there are some ways that your system is different like try and like Bridget's saying know the rules and then you will know when and why to break them like if you start with okay this this works in the field this is an evidence-based practice then I can you know shift around that once I understand my system and part of what we're talking about I think is a little bit of a a mindset too you know like okay I'm going to look around I'm going to try this I'm going to see what works and then I'm going to adapt as necessary instead of starting of a oh well that will never work um and I said want to highlight something that Deepu's had has this running list of what we're saying in the chat it's so helpful that I'll plug in the show notes but one of the things that Deepu said is fail and fail fast you know, do it, let it fail, let it get wrong, because that's information too. Everything is a test. And we feed that back into our system that the system's principle, you know, these feedback loops, we do something, we see if it works, or if we does, if it doesn't work, and we learn from it, and then we iterate our process from that. And so it's these, you know, coming back to what, you know, what is the, the basics of the protocol, keeping it simple, adjusting it, kind of staying nimble as needed. But we're talking about making structure, making processes, again, like a standardized practice that's better for the team, that's better for the patient, that's better for all of us. Because yes, many, many, many of us, when we start this out, are kind of flying by the seat of our pants, figuring out what works, reinventing the wheel. How many cliches can I say in a row? Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to stay there. Yeah, yeah, and and I think uh, the the whole fail fast thing. It's interesting because it actually has this parallel process with, in particular, with PCBH. Because really, if you think about it, PCBH clinically is based on a fail fast model. It's basically saying, hey, we're not going to throw the kitchen sink of assessment at a patient at that first visit. We're going to try to be as helpful as possible as quickly as we possibly can, because we'd rather err on the side of like trying to help and failing than doing a whole bunch of assessment and never seeing that patient back or wasting time, you know, essentially, or collecting information that's not even relevant to what we need to the patient needs today. And so there's this really nice parallel process there with that iterative willingness to learn, willingness to enter into a process and do what's, what's doable in the moment, right? To, 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 to seize what's possible. So what we're talking about with workflows is really doing that on a system level where you're saying, 
hey, there's a workflow that's needed. We want to mirror what, what primary care does. Um, and we, we may find things that we can't exactly do the way we want to do ideally, but we're not going to stay stuck there. We're going to try to start with a basic workflow, basic procedure, test that out, learn from that, build that, and often build that over years, actually, right? Iterate over years on those sorts of uh, processes. Yeah, I think underlying the spirit of all of that, I think fundamentally is alignment with the rest of the team, right? Like kind of really building an empathy map of each of the users and kind of understanding that. I know, Bridget, you guys do this, and I'm, and I'm assuming most of the, the systems do it. And if you don't, I think uh, we may say we highly recommend it, right? It's uh, before, like we, we were just about to unleash a whole bunch of trainees into our rural clinics uh, who are PCBH in a training path in our institution. So we just met with a clinic manager yesterday. And for the first uh, four or five times that the trainee is there, all they're doing is just appreciating what the heck the clinic does, right? So they're going to sit with the front desk for four hours. It's all they're going to do. They're going to understand every single mechanism or action that person takes. Then they're going to shadow the medical assistant from vitals in to vitals out and to the, till the patient leaves. And then they're going to uh, spend uh, time uh, shadowing the primary care provider. Um, I, my assumption is, I could be wrong, at least true for me, most mental health providers who are getting into this work actually may not have a good appreciation or mental model for what a PCP handles on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So knowing what your colleagues do is extremely important, right? One, just to kind of build uh, a sense of empathy for them as to what they handle and how they handle and the number of things that come at them every time they walk into a room and also understanding all the stuff they do post visit, right? Like uh, form signing and uh, sending uh, messages here and getting this referral and all of these labs order and all of these things that they do. So understanding that. And then uh, one of the things that we're gonna have our trainees do once they do all of the shadowing for each of the stations, then we are actually gonna have them follow a patient through the whole process to see how everything connects from check-in to check-out and the visit, right? So then they can kind of say, okay, we're ready to take consults and kind of begin to test the process out. And I told the clinic manager, I said, man, like the next two months, it's just going to be learning and eyes wide open, completely curious. We're not expecting any miracles to happen, right? We just want to, uh, we don't want to innovate, right? We just want to align and standardize. And maybe from there we can innovate. But our goal now is just to merge uh, completely with the culture of the clinic. And this again, like uh, the, the, this rural clinic is literally one lane inside the building with four rooms in the back. And the PSR or the patient service representative is here. There's a room for MA vitalis and that's it. So it's not like a big clinic, right? So um, we're definitely keeping our eyes open and, and hearts open as we go into that space. Yeah, that, that's such an awesome uh, process. Can't, can't emphasize how important that is to, and I love the way you talked about an empathy map, building an empathy map, right? That's what you're trying to do underneath all the team-based processes, all the clinical skill development, all that kind of stuff. 
And yeah, it, it, it kind of coincides with a comment that Bridget put on the chat here that's also true of, of me. She said, um, I'm still shocked when I shout at residents about what they do. And, and that's, that's why it's super uh, crucial to build processes that are sustainable for the entire team because we far too often, and, and, and I think um, managers and clinical systems, et cetera, do this far too often. The number of cognitive steps that a provider has to take in a typical primary care visit is absolutely patently absurd. Like all you have to do is just work your way through a few medical visits with a provider in the morning to realize, oh my Lord, there is no way I'm going to add one more thing for this provider to do. There's no way. If anything, I'm going to try to figure out some way to remove one of these steps that they have to take in a visit. And a lot of those steps, by the way, for those of you listening, have nothing to do with like listening to the patient and, uh, you know, kind of attending to what the patient concern is for that particular visit, right? There's just a tremendous amount. And so when you do have that experience, it really does then influence your development of protocols because you are then thinking of protocols as ways to remove work or cognitive load from your teammates who are overloaded versus adding work towards some sort of end goal, no matter how good that end goal might be, how important that end goal might be, et cetera. You cannot add more to their plate. You're always looking to remove that, which my last little plug here is automate. Whenever possible, look for automated processes. So like one of the things I'm going to be pushing this year, especially is for, for systems to really start investing in automated. If you want to screen, automate it. Don't ask your people to do it. If you want to do outcomes monitoring, automate it. Figure out ways. We know now, especially in a telehealth world, ways to send people texts to fill stuff out. Don't ask your MA to do one more thing. Don't ask your BHC to do one more thing. Don't ask your PCP to do one more thing. Figure out a way to automate whatever part of the process you possibly can. Um, Grace, just real quick, and we might need to, we were going to have to make a note uh, for the future, but so many of the points that Neftali is making and, uh, and Deepu and everybody here uh, is making about what is expected of a PCP is a perfect launching point for helping folks in BHC world understand when enough is enough from a BHC intervention perspective. And it helps against what we were talking about earlier about throwing everything in the kitchen sink at a patient and wanting to do these ridiculous, you know, five hour testing and all this stuff. Because if you're able to really deeply and truly understand what a pediatrician is expected to do, you'll understand why it was very crucial that you went in and you taught that parenting strategy. And no, maybe it's not enough, but it was something and it's important and you can build off of that process. So I think it is um, not for today's conversation, but these, these, these fundamentals are really good launching points for also understanding what you should do as a clinician and how what you might be doing in 17 minutes is crucial, even if it's not the full, you know, seven hour protocol. I love that. Next month, enough is enough. <laughs> um, I think that I, I don't want to, but I need to wrap up our conversation. Um, I, like I said, I love that we had so many words about this and I think it's a really interesting and productive conversation. And I, 
hope it's one that will continue on the listserv as well, because I know that a lot of our listeners will have ideas and have thoughts about, you know, what's worked and what's not worked for them. If I can just pull out a few of the pearls um, that we have said in this conversation, the, the wisdom here is we're talking about standardizing processes. And we're talking about very simple ways to stay aligned with our values and to reduce the cognitive burden on providers. Um, So when, in whatever setting you're in, look around at your system, ask yourself, what is working here? What is not? Where are we getting hung up? How can we have a very simple way to bring us together in alignment with the values of our system and the needs of our patient and providers and be a little bit more structured to help us to deliver the care? Because that's what we're talking about is coming back to the core. What are the values? How can those values translate into our practice? in the most simple way possible. And so that doesn't give you a protocol to put into place in your clinic. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that that's possible for us in this moment. But hopefully it does help you think about how can I, from the ground up, not from a top down, not to come in and take the lid off and rearrange the pieces and walk back out, but from the inside, look around and come up with procedures that are not going to be more burdened that are going to be a benefit to our patients, to our team, and keep us in alignment with our values. That's the core of what we're asking for. So, you know, there's so many things that are just wisdom. And I know that I'm going to look forward to listening back to this. And we're also, um, you know, my co-hosts are plugging resources even into the chat that we will put into the show notes. And like I said, I hope this conversation will continue. And I love that idea for next month, Bridget, talking about when is enough is enough and how can understanding, you know, the needs of our system and our providers help us to understand our role even more. So stay tuned and come back for that conversation in February, uh, this 2022. I do know what year it is. I don't know if that's going to make sense depending on what the poll quote quote at the beginning of the episode was. But There's a tie-in back to the... Uh original question, the icebreaker, eight is enough. That was another family show (laughs) back in the 70s. Yes, yes. We are going to hop to our special segment um, and then come back for our closing meditation. Okay. Well, I am so excited about this special segment today. Thank you for being with us. Uh, This is our final team member spotlight. We've had a chance to give everybody a little bit of one-on-one time, except for a voice that our listeners haven't heard before. Um, Our kind of brain power behind the mic and on the other side of the screen, uh, we have Kevin, our audio editor with us today. So what I would love for you to do, first of all, is just take a minute to introduce yourself. Grace, thank you for having me on. It's great to be on this side of the mic, so to speak. My name is Kevin Radine. I am a licensed mental health counselor by training and um, have spent uh, about 25 years of my career in college mental health. Actually, a good portion of that has also been in college administration. Uh, so you've been involved in college mental health and college administration. How did you get tied into CFHA? Yeah, so it was Alan Lorenz who introduced me to CFHA. I knew Alan from the College Health Conference circuit. He had heard me present once on integrated college health, and you know he knew that was my gig. And 
because uh, I had always worked in integrated centers where the specialty mental health staff and the, the physical medicine staff were co-located as one team. And so it was Alan that invited me to CFHA. And my first CFHA meeting was the anniversary one in Rochester. Uh, and so that's how I got involved and met Naftali and Deepu and uh, other members of the team. And that's, and that's what actually when I said, hey, I, I could help out with the podcast. I'd, I'd love to assist. And I come at that as kind of a weird angle too. I've been, uh, you know, I haven't done much of it recently, but for about 10 years in the past, I was a freelance voiceover artist. And oh, how interesting. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. I was, you know, I was doing commercial work. I was doing narration of training videos and things like that. And um, because it was a lot of free, freelance work, I was, I was doing a lot of the audio editing myself and kind of taught myself to do that. And so I was like, Hey, this is, I can help out with the podcast in that way. You know, That's so cool. I love yeah. it. I think you offered that at just the right moment. Cause Niftali did not enjoy doing the audio editing at all. <laughs> so he was yeah. really pleased by your offer. And then you've done such an amazing job. Um, so thank you. So it was a great way for me to just kind of stay doing that work or a piece of that work when I had stepped away from it. And I really stepped away from it. I was like, like flirting with a PhD program and I kind of made the decision, like, I either need to do the PhD or stay in voiceover, but I can't do both and have a family and all of that at the same time. And so the PhD won out. Yes. So tell and, us about that. Where where sure. have you studying? What's your research? Absolutely. I am um, studying at uh, Rutgers University, the School of Health Professions, working on a PhD in health sciences. And I'm so excited to say that I'm coming to the end of it. I'll be defending my dissertation in late March. So I'm working with this great committee. Dr. Scott Parrott is my chair. He's really directed me through a sequence of projects that have accumulated to where I am today and, and that I can talk about. I've been studying the implementation of integrated college health systems and have specifically drilled down into primary care behavioral health systems on college campuses. The PCBH model, where the BHC is embedded with the primary care student health center team. So the final two pieces of my research have uh, been a national survey of BHCs in college health settings, and then follow-up structured interviews with a sample of those survey respondents and administrators and medical providers at their centers. I had 71 respondents to the survey representing 59 different colleges and universities. The core of my survey really was the PPAC, or um, Primary Care Provider Adherence Questionnaire, which is a fidelity measure. Um, I mean, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with it, and a lot of our CFHA members, you know, actually designed and, uh, you know, there's a, a huge research team behind that, that are CFHA members, but um, I used that. That was the core of my survey, really, to to see, well, how much fidelity is out there in the college health BHC world. And a quick finding was uh, more than half, you know, slightly more than half were all uh, operating at the preferred level, which was kind of exciting to see. Yeah, I saw some similarities with community um, studies that have done in the VA or uh, in community settings and some differences. I didn't see a lot of differences in the demographic variables uh, in my sample a little bit um, for, between social workers and psychologists 
which was kind of an interesting finding. Um, and, and some of the findings that went against um, what we might expect based on traditional training. Um, but the real goal was try to, to understand what are the operational factors that support doing the PCBH model well. So high fidelity. This is where it, where it kind of gets in the weeds. I did quantitative comparative analysis mm -hmm. is was the what I did, you know, kind of versus traditional linear modeling, right? And so I looked at four factors, diagnosis specific workflow, the communication between the BHC and the PCP in the EHR, um, having a unified treatment plan versus two standalone treatment plans. And the other was uh, multidisciplinary meetings, clinical meetings, administrative meetings or whatever. And so the idea was what four, of those four, which ones differentiate the preferred versus the moderate level centers. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't get any, I wanted to compare the high and low performers. None of the low performers wanted to participate in part two of the study. Oh, darn. So the punchline is of the four, workflow and treatment plans were the ones that differentiated the preferred people versus the moderate performing fidelity. The other two fell out. You know, maybe if I had some low people, they would have been, you know, and, and theoretically I'm almost thinking like, yeah, it's the, it's the low performers that need maybe the meetings to, to build some relationships before they even get to the level of we're communicating and it's second nature in the EHR, we're constantly, we're pinging each other and thank you for that referral. And I saw this, your patient, and when you see him next, do this, you know, which was kind of, again, kind of theory is supporting them working well together and, it, and the PPAC score being high. Kind of my question for you is given this work and given what you're finding and also your experience, um, you know, we really highlighted and talked about workflow a lot this month. What are some of the takeaways or what are some of the pieces about really the why, why that workflow is so central to an optimal level of integration? Well, I think it has to do with, um, it, it puts the structure in place and it becomes routine and people don't need to think about it. And it takes away a lot of that cognitive load, right? We, then we can think about the patients and then we can, we can think about the interventions we're gonna do if we're kind of in um, you know, autopilot in a way and we've got this structure and guidance of uh, how we're gonna respond to a specific diagnosis. It's, a, it's interesting to put it that way because I think, you know, I think our listeners know, cause I never stop talking about the fact that I usually train early career clinicians and I feel like when there's not that structure, they do really flounder and there are, you know, they have to spend a lot of, like you're saying, processing time, kind of cognitive load of figuring out, okay, what do I do next? It's like every patient is something totally new, but when it's not, and when we can say, okay, here's our standard, then we can think about personalizing it. Then we can think about connecting with the specific needs of that system. Yeah, and I, and I think it also, for, from an integration standpoint, it also defines everybody's role in the process. So the, the PCP has a role, the nurse maybe has a role. You know, if everybody has a piece, there's no second guessing. And so I think the collaboration, then, it's the same kind of thing with the cognitive load for the collaboration. I'm confident that the PCP is going to do X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, I don't need to make sure they did it. I don't need to remind them. I don't need to, you know, I can just look in the note. Oh yeah, they did it. That was the result of, you know, what I was expecting them to do. 
Yeah, part of a well-functioning team. I yeah, think that's exactly. very well said. That provides the structure. And that, so the same thing with the communication in the EMR, I think it just facilitates the collaboration in such a, particularly in a high-paced environment. It allows uh, for that connectivity when the structure's in place yeah. to just, uh, to stay, to stay in touch. So what do you, what do you think is kind of next in research in this area? What needs to be done? What, what do you foresee as the next kind of building block in this sort of line of inquiry? Well, I, you know, I re- reflect on the editorial that just came out from Jennifer Funderburg and colleagues. And I think it's, uh, they put out a fantastic roadmap and I think it's really consistent. I was really, you know, I was kind of smiling inside because it was consistent with the kind of track I'm on, the recipe, um, you know, that they laid out a lot of, you know, kind of the variables I looked at were ones in their uh, recipe. So, you know, I think I, I really, I mean, I look to them as leaders in the field and I think they, um, they're on a good track. I'm, I'm happy to be joining that. You know, in a way, I feel like I'm uh, I'm joining the bandwagon, so to speak. Um, let's put it this way: there's no shortage of lines of inquiry because I think it's you know right now I'm focused a lot on how do we uh, you know set the environmental conditions or the the context to support fidelity. Um, but you know, so that's more of an administrative outcome, but I, you know, I think we also need to look at patient outcomes and provider outcomes and financial outcome. And I think your research is the example of how there's a lot of different populations and different kinds of systems that need this examination as well. I mean, to look at college campus clinics, they have a different patient population than many other places. And so we need to know does PCBH, does integration work the same way? Or is there something unique of how we can optimize the work to this system and to the needs of these students? Like I imagine that funding is a little bit different in these college clinics. And that might be part of the reason why some things look a little bit different. And so I just, I really think that that's really important that you're looking at this kind of system or like a different population. Thank you so much. I just appreciate like, um, I, I appreciate you being here. I greatly appreciate all of the work that you do every month on making us sound better and all the times that I have oh, to say, I'm gonna rewind, go back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my pleasure. I, I enjoy the podcast. I mean, I learned so much from all of you just listening to it and working through it. So it's my wow. pleasure to be involved. Though. Thank you so much. And I uh, appreciate you being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. I'm so thankful to start our year off this way. I'm always thankful to be with you guys and to have this conversation with you. And um, I want to just kind of bump it to Difu for our ending closing meditation, as we always do. All right. This is a blessing for the new year uh, from John O'Donohue, the book that Grace gifted me. So here it is. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the carag of thought, 
and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Happy New Year from CFHA. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you again next month.